This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. How are we doing this morning? Good. That is good to hear, man. If you have not kept up with this series, you need to. It has been incredible to listen to Wayne and Aaron go through this, um, if, especially if you didn't have a chance to listen to the sermon last week, I would highly recommend you check out the podcast, right? How good was that sermon? Not good for me to follow, but a good sermon nonetheless. Yeah, so it is really a privilege to be able to preach to my new church family. So um, I'm going to be going uh, through the story. I'm going to start with the biblical story. I'm going to go back to Genesis 1 and 2, trace a little bit of that for us. So I'm going to get to our passage I'm going to lay some groundwork for our passage and kind of talk through what we need to know before we dive into it. I'll walk my way through our passage, and then I'll anchor everything at the end in the gospel. We'll come to, okay, in light of this passage, what does it say for us as God's people, and how do we move forward in the gospel? So pray with me, and then I'll jump to it. God, I just thank you again for this time together. God, I thank you so much for this church. God, you have been good to Redemption Alhambra. God, you have been good to me and my family and bringing us here, God. So now I pray in the name of Jesus that uh, you would just meet with us here. I thank you. As Aaron said, God, we have all we need in Christ. We have been given the Spirit. You're already here with us. We just want more. So please, in the name of Jesus, God, just fall on us now that we could hear your word, we could obey your word, and we could fall in love with Jesus. All God's people say, Amen. amen. So we start in Genesis 1 and 2 with God raising his family. And that's going to be a thread that I trace through all the way, is God is a God. He's a father that raises his kids. So we go back to Genesis 1 and 2. We see that he breathes life into his children. He gives them everything they could possibly want. There's just one stipulation that God lays down. Do not eat from this one tree. Everything else you can have, you can enjoy. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to raise you. What do they do? They walk away from God. They disobey God's voice, and they walk away. So because of that, It's not God that wanted to cast them out, but they cast themselves out, right? right? They walk away from God. So then there's separation, but God comes after his kids. Does he not? And it starts with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and we work our way to Joseph. And then we find ourselves in our story. We find ourselves in the book of Exodus, and God hears the cries of his kids that are calling out to him. And God comes down, and he raises up a man named Moses. And Moses comes, and he tells Pharaoh, you need to let God's people go. But Pharaoh doesn't obey. Pharaoh decides to harden his own heart, we see in the story. And then after sign and wonder, after sign and wonder, it gets worse and worse. Till finally, Moses comes back, and he says, it's going to get really bad if you do not let God's people go so that they can worship him and serve him. Pharaoh says no, so God takes an already hardened heart and clamps down on it, hardens it even further, and what we see is a massacre of the firstborn. Devastation comes over Egypt. It says that there's a cry in Egypt that has never been heard before, but there's one thing that saved the firstborn in every household. What is it? The blood. If you put the blood on the doorpost, you will be saved. So God's people finally get out of Egypt with a remnant of the Egyptians who put the blood on the door. 
They come through the Red Sea. They're staring back at an army that is 600 chariots. You have to think this is a massive army that is coming down on God's people. They start to question. God destroys the enemy. And then as you heard and saw from Pastor Aaron last week, we enter into a praise break. And then it leads us to our passage. And what you need to know about our passage is this is God's people in their infancy. God has actually given a rebirth to his people in this text. Just as we are born again in Christ and we are adopted back into God's family, so they come through the Red Sea. And what you have to look at this as is God had a people, but this is a rebirth, and he's trying to form them into his people in the wilderness. But they do not know what it is to have a loving father. They do not understand what it is to be loved, to be adopted, to be cared for, to have someone that provides for them. If you take nothing away from this sermon, you have to take away that our Father provides. Turn to your neighbor and say, He provides. Our Father provides, and that's what God is trying to show them over and over and over, but it doesn't fit the logical framework that they're trying to work within. It doesn't make sense to them the way God is choosing to work, because they don't see the full picture. You know, we just went to the beach over the summer, and we uh, went back east. We flew into Raleigh, which was probably a bad mistake on our part, and then we took the long road to get to North Carolina to the beach, and we're building this up for our daughter. We're telling her that the beach is coming. It's the promised land. (laughs) Everything that you could ever want is at the beach, right? You're going to build sandcastles. You're going to be in the water. It's going to be incredible. But what happens when we're in the car on the journey? She starts to question, right? The trust starts to break down. Now, my wife and I would think we've proven faithfulness up to this point, but trust starts to break down. My daughter starts to question. But just like God here, and just like my wife and I, we didn't boot her out of the car. We're committed to raising our children. As Pastor Aaron said last week, God is not a God who just gives birth to his kids and then doesn't raise them. God is a God who is faithful to raise his kids. And what I think is fascinating from this text, what I want us to think about, is who God chooses to raise. He could have chosen the most powerful military force at that time, which have been the Egyptians, and said, I'm going to choose you as my people, and you're going to be the ones that I choose, the most powerful in society. But what does God do? God goes to the margins. God goes to the slaves. God goes to the homeless, the weak, the broken. He says, I am going to take you, and I'm going to make you something great. And you're going to know it's me, and it's not you, because I am the one that is building you up. It's good news for us, because I want you to know that once God grabs a hold of you, as he grabbed the hold of his people in Egypt, he does not let go. God is committed to you, amen? He is committed to us as his people. Once you give your life to Jesus, God is committed to walk alongside of you and to be with you. So I want to pick up right where Aaron left off. Aaron was talking through, he ended his time last week talking through God making the water sweet once it was bitter. So if you would, stand with me once again, and we're going to read God's word. It's going to be Exodus 15, 22 through 27. Starting in verse 22, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to 
Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to my... Listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and take a seat. So what I want to talk through right here, because Aaron talked a little bit about this passage, what I want to talk through is where God's people are at in this story. We have to recognize, and this does not excuse God's people for their behavior, but it's an explanation. And what we're dealing with here is a traumatized people, a people that have come out of slavery They've been used, they've been abused, they've been mistreated, and God is taking them on the long journey. He is walking beside them to teach them what a loving father does when his child has been abused. I think of a pastor in the East Valley um, who's become a good friend. He had four grown kids, and then God called him into the foster care process, so they decided to jump in, and one of the uh, first um, foster kids that they had in their home was a sibling group. So they had this young sibling group, they're four years old, and uh, these two girls had been abused, they were suffering from trauma, and this guy is massive. Yeah. He's a huge pastor. So what does he do? He gets, in, he gets down on his hands and knees and crawls into the room just to make himself known and say, I'm coming down to your level, and I'm not just giving you grace, I'm giving you more grace, huh. more compassion. Yes. I think of another uh, foster family that took a young kid in that had also suffered from a ton of abuse and was dealing with trauma, and he would have these huge outbursts. He would yell, he would kick, he would punch. Sometimes he would jump on the ceiling that the lights would flicker on and off. He was four years old. He was four years old. Now, why were they doing this, and why did these girls need so much love and attention? Because they'd never known the love of a father. They didn't know what it was to have a father that was kind, that was compassionate, that would walk with them, that would come down to their level and actually be there with them through all of it. All they knew was pain. All they knew was psychological, emotional, relational trauma. But what you see is God giving more grace when his children don't deserve it. They aren't deserving of the grace, but he gives more compassion and more grace. He just pours it out on his children. Now, once again, This is not an excuse for their behavior because you see God calling them to obedience, right? God calls them to obedience, but it's an explanation for it. And once again, I just want us to think about who God chooses. God could have chose anyone to change the world. He could chose anyone. But he comes to his people in slavery and says, I'm going to take these slaves who have experienced more trauma than some of us could ever possibly understand. Some of you could understand it. But he says, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to do something great through you. And the next one we see in a father that provides is a father that provides bread from heaven. And this is chapter 16, 1 through 3. 
They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you would have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. So they cry out to God. God hears their prayer. He gives them food. He gives them meat. At night, he reminds them he is the God that delivered them from Egypt. He gives them manna and everything. I think this is just fascinating. The scholars would say that almost everything could be explained by science except from the manna. No one has a reason except for a sign and wonder actually happened, and the manna came down from heaven. The bread was on the ground, and they could pick it up, and they could eat it, and God sustained his people with this manna for 40 years. But what you see here is there's a transition, uh, transition that's happening because before the whole conversation, since we've been in this book, the whole conversation is about deliverance from Egypt. Wow. How is God going to deliver his people from Egypt? So you see him do signs and wonders. You see him do great things to deliver his people from Egypt. But here you see that it's not just delivering his people from Egypt. He needs to del- deliver Egypt from his people. Yeah. Because it's not just a conversation about out there. It's a conversation about what's going on in here. And God doesn't just have to save the body. He doesn't just have to save the circumstance, although he does. God has to save the whole person, including the mind and including the heart. God has to save the whole of who they are. You know, when I actually got saved, I grew up in a pastor's home. um, But I really didn't walk with Jesus till. Uh, middle of college. So high school, freshman year of college, no real relationship with Jesus. And my whole life, I didn't know it at the time, but now looking back, my whole life was actually oriented around these cultural idols. My whole life wanted more. My whole life was focused on me. If I could only get a better job, if I was a business major, if I could only get into business, get a better job, gain more status. And all of this is around these cultural idols that says the whole world focuses on you autonomy, and everything is swept up into this consumeristic culture that says you just need the next best thing. If you could only get the next best experience, if you could only get to the next rung on the ladder, if you could only get that next job you've been wanting, that next girl you've been wanting, then you'll be satisfied. My whole life was oriented around this. So what did God have to do? God had to literally pick me up out of my circumstances, give me a new family, give me a new school, give me a new major, change the whole of who I, he had, there was an exodus, right, to bring me out of all of it, but now here I am 20 years later, and still there's something that goes on in here, right, because you realize it wasn't just God liberating me from those circumstances, although he did, but you realize there's sin in me that God has to weed out as well, And even now as a pastor, I know all of you, if you've experienced that exodus that comes from liberation in Christ, you know you've been taken out of bondage to sin. Now you've been set free, but still there's something that calls back to us, right? And says we need to go back to it. Just like they wanted to go back to Egypt, we want to go back as well. So we can understand, we read this and say, how often when we think about what God has delivered us from, do we say, man, if I only had that, what I once had way back when. 
or it starts to permeate our lives now and say, if I only had more for me. So it's not just taking the bad guys away. It's actually healing the bad that's within. And I love this quote. If I can get to it here. Man, I'm trying to learn how to use this thing. (laughs) I don't know where it's at. (laughs) Hey, you know what? We're just going to go without it for a moment. All right, Aaron's going to come up, try to help me out, and I'm just going to read the quote on here. So don't pay attention to him. Just pay attention to me. All right? Here we go. Let me read you this quote. If only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. And you could think that thus far in the Exodus, right? Now that the bad people are gone, now that the Egyptians are gone, now everything can be okay for God's people. But here he goes on to say, But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So we recognize it's not just God taking us out of our circumstances. It's not just God liberating us from the life that we once live, although we once want that. It's God actually liberating our hearts. And how do we experience this? It's because we keep coming back and crying out to God. We don't just get up and try harder. We come back to God and we cry out to our Father. And what happens when they cry out? Their Father provides. He comes and he meets them, and he is gracious if they keep asking. Another thing we realize here is the Lord provides rest. So I love these two quotes. When you think about the rest that God provides, but let me read this text first. Verse 25, Moses said, Eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Why? Why would God do this? Because God wants to force them to trust and give them rest. Only when we experience the grace of Christ can we actually rest. Then we can actually have a day where we can kick back and say, all of this belongs to God anyway. God's always been in control of all of it. He's still in control of it. And we can actually trust and we can actually rest. But it's hard. It was hard for them and it's hard for us. So a lot of times I I like to look at Christians and say, do you get the gospel? It's not how hard you're working for Christ, but it's how much you're actually resting in Christ and what Christ has already done in your life. A few quotes that are powerful, one from A.J. Swoboda. Sabbath is the first image of the gospel in the biblical story. God's nature always gives rest first, and work comes later. This is reflected in all our lives. Before our lives in the world began, we got nine months to rest in the world in the womb. Before taking up a vocation, we got a few years just to play as children. And before our six days of labor, we received a day of rest. God is a good God who gives rest. And then the next quote, I think, is good. And if we go against this as God's people, as they tried to, they tried to gather more manna. God said, I want you to rest. I want you to trust me. On the sixth day, gather more so on that day you can set it apart and remember that I am good to you. Remember my grace given to you. Remember that I am a God that provides. But they didn't do it. 
And what comes to them? More judgment, more hardship. And this is what it says. If we go against the grain of the universe, if you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. (laughs) So we have to stay within the framework and the order that God has given us, and we have to trust. The Father provides water from the rock, and this is chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped by Rephraim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, and he said, What shall I do with these people? (laughs) They are almost ready to stone me. You know, I don't get that nervous as a pastor or as a dad if my daughter comes to me or someone comes to me, come to me, comes to me grumbling. Because you know why? I, th- I think it's still a sign of trust. When my daughter comes to me, even if she doesn't come in the right way, there's still a sense that she knows I can provide. Every single morning, I get up, my daughter's up, I make coffee, and as I'm going in to make coffee or I'm going in to get my cereal, every time, which means my milk. You're going to get my milk? And I'm like, have I ever not got your milk? <laughs> we have to have this conversation every morning. Have I, ne- have I never? Have I forgot? Have me or mom, have we ever forgot your milk? Every time I remember your milk, right? And sometimes she asks nicely. Sometimes she'll ask nicely. Sometimes she won't ask ni- nicely. But still, there's a coming to her father saying, you have proven you provide. And God provides. So still, there's some sense of trust when they quarrel with Moses, when they're coming to God, and God gives more grace. God just pours it out. Ask your heavenly Father, and he gives. God provides. So I think what's powerful for us to think about in this is that through Jesus, now there's a connection when we can go directly Let's just let it pass. It's all right. Let it pass. There we go. So now we can actually go directly to our Father. So it's not us having to come to Aaron. It's not us having to come to Wayne. I mean, their schedules are full enough, although they wouldn't mind the pastoral counseling. But now through Jesus being a a priesthood of believers, we can actually come to God and quarrel with him. We come to God with our angst, we come to God with our burdens, we come to God with our frustrations, and you see this in the Psalms. You see David wrestling with God. Things don't always make sense, and they certainly didn't make sense in the wilderness for God's people because they didn't understand the end, they didn't trust, and when you don't trust and when you're anxious, I encourage you, come to God. Don't get apathetic. You have to come to Jesus, come through Jesus to the Father, And I promise you, when you come to God, you'll see that your Father provides. Because what does God do? When we come to God, God loves to remind us of his faithfulness. Doesn't he? You come to God with your angst. You come to God with your grumbling. You come to God with your worry. And he takes you back in the biblical story. He takes you back in your story and says, have I not been faithful? Have I not always provided for you? 
Every single time we're reminded that God is good to us and God provides, but we can take everything to him. We can take our worries to him. We can take our angst to him. We can take our grumbling to him. And God says, come to me, for I'm gracious and I'm compassionate. We don't have to change ourselves. A lot of times we think, okay, I can't come to God with grumbling. I have to change myself first so I can come to God with thanksgiving and I can come to him with praise. Yes, wouldn't we all love to be there? Every single day, it would just be great if every day I could just wake up and sing God's praises. Live my and say, oh, God is so good. But some days, I don't feel like that. Some days, I question God's goodness. I question his goodness towards me. I question his goodness towards my family. But he says, keep coming to me. Even with the grumbling, come to me. And what we get is more compassion and more grace. And this grace is what fuels us to actually leave God's presence and to be his people. Later on in the story, um, they're about to stone Moses, as you saw. You know, these people are about to stone me, and that's actually um, them casting judgment on Moses. And this is what God does. This is what Edmund Clowney says that God does, which I think is incredible. He says, call the elders together so we can make this official, and I in a cloud am going to go up on the rock. And you remember from Deuteronomy that God is called the rock. I'm going to go up on the rock, and you can strike the, ro- strike the rock, and what you're going to get is living water. And what Edmund Clowney says that this is, is God actually, as the rock, taking the punishment for his people, and in response to the punishment, what they get is living water. He says, I'll take the punishment, and what you get in response for bickering and complaining and grumbling, I'm going to give you living water. Isn't that incredible? We come to God with grumbling. His response is, here's more to drink. So carrying forward, the last one, the Father provides victory over enemies. And this is Exodus 17, 8 through 18. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephraim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Today I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So what we see here is God is not just providing through water and through food, but God is actually defeating our enemies. Yes, yes. We, we already know this. We've seen it in the Exodus, and he reminds us again. But this actually has a foreshadow of something else. Yes, it, it has a foreshadow of a promised land. Because yep. what's important for you to remember, what's important for us to remember, is that when we're in the wilderness, this is not the ultimate destination. That's right. Wilderness is not what God has for you as God's people. It is not what he had for them as God's people. What God has is a promised land ahead of you. But the journey to get there is hard. The journey to get there is long because along the way in the journey, what is he doing? He's forming a people into his image. It took him one day to get them out of Egypt. It takes a lifetime to get Egypt out of them. And it's the same thing for you. It takes one day for God to save you, but a lifetime for him to form you into his image, right? And this is telling them, I'm going to go for you. This first time we're introduced to Joshua as the military leader and says, I have a land for you. I think about the psalm. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil for you are with me. And what does he have planned for us? He has a stream. He has peace. He has green grass. He's like, I prepare a table and It sits before you. This is the image. This is the vision we get from Genesis 1 and 2. This is the vision we get from Revelation 21 and 22, that God has a beautiful place for you. 
but he calls us to trust him in the journey through the wilderness. Also, what I get from here is that we have to boast in our weakness. We have to boast in our weakness. Because here you see in this story that Moses by himself was incapable. He was not able to hold his hands up. Every time that he held his hands up, Israel prevailed. But he actually had to have people come alongside of him. And this seems counterintuitive to us, but as God's people, we recognize as we sang that song that we come to him lonely, desperate, an orphan, and we boast in these things. These things are not to our discredit, they're to our credit, so Christ may be made strong through us. Everything that you think is a deficiency in your life to the world is actually to your benefit in Christ. Those are things that we boast in and we say, God, through this weakness, you can actually build me up into your image. Moses was weak, and so are you. And we need, brothers and sisters, we need Christ to come and actually nourish us and fill us up. And this actually leads us to the gospel because we remember that the Father's ultimate provision is only in Jesus. Because Moses was not sufficient. They kept coming to Moses. He grumbled in the wilderness. Moses took it to the Lord, but he was insufficient. And the only person that is actually sufficient is Jesus. He is the ultimate bread of life. He's the only thing that sustains us. And we get this from John 6, 31 through 37. So Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then he goes on the other side of the sea. And his disciples find them there. And they said, how long have you been here? What's going on? What are you doing? And he says, why do you seek me out? He says, you're not seeking me out because you've seen what I've done and you know who I am. You're seeking me out because your bellies are full. That's what the text says. You got your fill of the bread and the loaves. And that's why you're seeking me out. And then he goes on to this, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. This is Jesus. Fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Your family, if you come to Jesus, once and for all, we remember that we are family. He says, for I have come down from heaven. Jesus is the bread of life that we come to. Jesus is the one who always and forever satisfies. Now, I want us to remember that the wilderness is hard, but I have a promise to make you that when you come to God day in and day out, if you're in a place of grumbling, if you come to God day in and day out with your grumbling, you come to God day in and day out with your insufficiencies, eventually, I promise it will lead to a praise break. Because God is going to show his goodness and his gracious, graciousness to you. He will prove his love and kindness to you if we come to him. Come to him with your grumbling and feast on Jesus. And now we come to communion. We remember all that Jesus has done for us. The true manna come down from heaven in the person, in the work of Jesus. 
You know, I didn't mention this, but as we went through the story and we were talking about the manna from heaven, they're actually commanded by God to set aside the manna so that they could always remember. Remember, 40 years they ate that manna. And they were commanded, set this aside so you can always remember my goodness to you. Set this aside so you can always look back at this manna in the wilderness and remember my faithfulness. And that's what this table is. We come to this table every single week to remember God's faithfulness to us. We take the bread that represents the body of Jesus, the manna that God gives us from heaven, and we drink the wine or the juice here. Some, yeah. We drink the juice here, and we remember his blood shed for us. The bread and the wine together is God's gift to us, and we feast on Jesus every single Sunday to remember how good he's been and how good he will be. So take a moment where you're at, and when you're ready, you come up and feast. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.